When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. I'm Eric Fisher, and this is a podcast not just about managing the day-to-day busyness, but the true goal of productivity, living a more meaningful life. This week, I'm excited to bring to you a conversation I had with Charan Ranganath. He's the author of the new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. And in this conversation, we're talking about how memory is powerful and important, and honestly, more crucial than we realize. And you may be thinking, ooh, we're going to learn how to tap into more than just the rumored 10% of our brains that we use and get into that other 90%. But this conversation is actually about rethinking what you know or have heard about memory, and that memory is more about quality and usefulness than just the sheer volume and quantity of what you remember. We're going to talk about the influence that Lifestyle factors like exercise and diet and your gut microbiome have on cognitive function and memory preservation and creation. And we're going to also talk about the emotional components of memory and the ways in which our culture's digital habits may be counterproductive to our memory retention. Overall, this is a great conversation to help you start understanding with a new appreciation the powerful role memory plays in nearly every aspect of our lives, from recalling faces and names to learning, decision-making, and even trauma and healing. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Charan Ranganath. Charan, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Excellent. Thank you for having me. This topic of memory hits home for me. I told you in pre-recording, my grandfather was a research scientist. So he was somebody who really was using his mind in a very scientific way. He was always one of the people I looked up to in that regard. And then he had dementia and other complications from Alzheimer's. So this hits home for me. You've been researching memory for years and years and now have this book out, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. And I love that it's not just, hey, it's a book about memory, but like that title, it's not just the how we remember, it's the why we remember. There's a meaning to it. I love that. And not only that, but then holding on to what matters. Because if anybody knows, as a listener of this show, we try to hone in on the things that truly matter. So I love how memory is powerful and it's important and honestly more crucial than we realize. What about your research drew you to specifically memory in this study? Well, so when I was in graduate school, I actually was training for clinical psychology. So even though I'm called a cognitive neuroscientist, I didn't actually get formal training in cognition or neuroscience in particular. But basically, during my clinical training, I did two things. One is psychotherapy, and the other was called neuropsychology. 
So in the neuropsychology clinic, I would be testing people who are coming in saying, I have a problem, or they're referred by a doctor or a family member, and they would say, you know, this person has a problem cognitively, meaning they have a problem with thinking, reasoning, memory, or whatever. And inevitably, I would say 80% of the people who were referred to us were people where we were concerned about memory. And in fact, most of the measures we used then were measures of memory. And one of the things that struck me about that was, number one, a lot of the tests that we were using, despite our best knowledge, were coming from 40, 50 years ago. So we have this topic that everyone's concerned about, and we're testing for it. And our actual understanding in the clinic seemed to be just behind schedule and not necessarily based on a modern understanding of the brain. Then in the psychotherapy world, I was finding that, you know, I was trained in a, a method called cognitive behavior therapy. Part of it is just kind of using essentially principles from learning theory to reduce people's fear and anxiety symptoms. But then beyond that, using the principles of cognitive therapy to question people's beliefs and question people's interpretations of things. And so... When you do the cognitive part, what you're doing is you're basically pulling up information about what's happening in the present and what's happening in the present almost always relates to people's past experiences. And so a lot of what we would be doing would be to question people's, not what happened, but more people's interpretation of what happened and their beliefs about it and what it tells them about themselves. So I was incredibly struck by the connection between both memory and just functioning in the real world because so many people were coming in saying they couldn't function in the neuropsychology clinic because of their memory problems. And then other people who had memories that were debilitating them in the present. And so all of these factors made it very interesting for me to actually study, well, how does memory work in the brain? And then just at that moment, it turned out that brain imaging was becoming very accessible. And there was this technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, where you could scan people's brains. And the idea of actually taking pictures of people's brains and seeing what areas light up while they're remembering something, it was just too good to pass up. So I passed up a lucrative career in clinical psychology to do something more interesting to me. Definitely more interesting. Again, I mentioned that it hits home personally. It also kind of scratches an itch, well, I guess inside my brain, of the sci-fi world. I'm thinking of Star Trek The Next Generation episodes where it's not just what you remember, but your perception of what happened and how you remember it. You're familiar with this, I'm sure, but all the different like eyewitness accounts that it's not about having an eyewitness account. It's about how do they actually look back on it themselves and remember it correctly? Or, I mean, we know that we can change the way that we remember something. We can be dead wrong. We actually had a discussion about this where somebody in my family thought that my daughter had brought her boyfriend to a recent Christmas holiday. And I said, that never happened. And my wife was like, what are you talking about? My mom said it did. And I'm like, that never happened. And then I turned to my daughter and she's like, that never happened. And so they remember it like it happened as if it happened, but it literally never happened. I'm not saying it's faulty memory, but it's one of those things where it's like fascinating to me and others how this works. So this is a productivity show. And a lot of people have heard David Allen talk about your brain is for having ideas, not holding them. And that's not exactly what you say, but it's similar to what you say when you talk about that our brains are not designed to 
remember everything. We're not supposed to remember everything. We're supposed to remember things better. Can you explain what that means? Yes. And there's just so much there. I just can't help myself. But like, I just have to say in terms of science fiction, I mean, there's so many great science fiction memory movies, you know, there's or in TV shows. Total Recall was like a hilarious, yes. but awesome one. TV show Severance. Amazing. Oh, my God. It's so good. I just have to plug these things because I just like uh, Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Minds, kind of a science fiction one, too. Yeah. So there's there's just so many, you know, and again, it speaks to how important it is to people. And, you know, when I was approached about writing a book, I, I already knew, you know, I've been studying this for, it makes me feel old every time I say it, but <laughs> I've been studying this for 25 years, over 25 years. And, you know, I wanted to write a book to get the word out to people. But initially, the, you know, people had been asking me to write a, a self-help book, improve your memory in 30 days, something very short, easy. and my knee-jerk response was that book has been written. It's been written better by other people and it's totally useful, but it's also not at all interesting to me. <laughs> and the reason is, is that, you know, I know we're in a culture of optimization, but to me, optimal is not remembering more, it's remembering better, right? And part of what I wanted to do is reframe people's expectations of what memory is supposed to be for and how it's supposed to work so that you could get to that point of remembering, right? So chief amongst the biggest, biggest uh, misconceptions people have is that memory is supposed to be this repository of the past. It's supposed to be a comprehensive library that we can pull out and we can replay anything we want, anytime we want, right? And we just know that's not true. Oh, by the way, Limitless is another great science fiction yes. movie about memory. You're naming favorites of mine left and right here. Yeah, Limitless was a great one because it really encapsulates this idea that it's like you're using 10% of your brain or whatever. And if you could just take this pill, NZT, that you can get the other 90%, you'll remember everything. And you'll be totally ultra powerful, right? And there's actually people now who sell supplements that they basically invoke Limitless. And they said, this is just like natural NZT. So this idea is highly ingrained in the culture. But the fact is, nobody has a perfect memory. So going back to the late 1800s, when the first studies were being done, quantifying how much people could remember, basically what became very clear was that within 24 hours, most of the details of any experience you could have will be lost. And it continues to go from there. But basically, the message over and over and over again is the majority of your experiences will be lost. And this is true for everyone I know of who's been studied. Now, there are some people who have an extraordinary memory for details in some particular areas. You can see this, for instance, in people who have been described as memory savants. There's people who have this kind of highly superior autobiographical memory where they can say, I remember that, you know, it was a Tuesday on, you know, some date. 10 years ago, and I was eating ice cream or something. But you give them any old information that you have to memorize, and they're just like anybody else, right? So if our memories are never perfect, nobody has a perfect memory, then the logical conclusion is, okay, our expectations are way out of whack. And if our expectations are way out of whack, well, what's it supposed to be doing? Why do we have this imperfect memory system? And then you could really just catalog all of the flaws of memory. Dan Schachter, who's a brilliant memory scientist, wrote a great book called The Seven Sins of Memory. 
And it's all about basically all of these ways in which human memory is deficient, right? But it's deficient, and Dan Dan said this, but basically it's deficient relative to people's expectations. So basically, we've been doing a lot of computer models of memory and trying to understand how the brain might do memory processes by through these computer models. And one of the things becomes clear is there's no free lunch. Basically, any design that you do is going to have costs and benefits. So the analogy I like to give is, let's say I'm developing a motor vehicle, right? I'm working for some you know car company, and I decide I need to build something that's going to sell. Well, what's my market? Is my market people who want to haul as much cargo as possible for long, long, long distances? Well, I'll design like a clunky cargo truck that's designed to store tons and tons of junk, right? But if my goal is to have a high-performance, nimble car that could stop on a dime, that can take quick turns, that is efficient, but very, very fast and powerful, I'm not going to be able to carry a lot of cargo. You have to make those trade-offs, right? And the human brain makes the trade-off of going for the high performance, not lugging a lot of cargo. So that's why people are able to process information so efficiently that it's like we use hardly any energy in our brains to do the things we do. And as impressive as modern generative AI is, they're just massive energy consumers, right? So basically, if you look at the brain, any way you want to slice it, it's always quality over quantity. And so even in the moment, what you can put into memory, what you can encode, what we find is, is that people don't see everything in front of them. What they see are these like bits and pieces that your eyes might be moving around from place to place to place. And what happens is you get a lot of information from a few points in the world. And then you use your knowledge and your memory to fill in the blanks for the rest. Well, that's super efficient. And it allows us not just to see what's in their room, but to generate predictions about what could happen next. And that's really what memory is for, is to understand what's happening in the present and then to be able to make predictions and plans and anticipate and simulate the future. That's a fascinating way of putting it. That analogy of the vehicle is a really great way for people to kind of grasp onto this. And in fact, I want to take it a step further and let's talk car maintenance in that metaphor. You talk about how different pieces of car management, so to speak, as humans, exercise and diet and sleep, all those play contributing factors into our memories, possible observations, as well as storing and collecting and interpreting. How do you see those playing into it? Like, what are the importance of those different human hygiene factors? As researchers have been doing more and more research into Alzheimer's disease, there's been a real shift from thinking about aging in terms of a disease model to thinking about it in terms of brain health and taking a more positive view of what we can do. Because right now we do not have a treatment for Alzheimer's, but there's so much low-hanging fruit out there that people can grab right now that has zero cost that will improve your quality of life and it will reduce your risk for dementia, preserve your cognition as you get older. So we've been talking about auto uh, maintenance, right? So one of the things that you don't want is you don't want a ball of guck running through your engines, right? And likewise, our brain is a body part. And our brain depends on getting you know, glucose, getting oxygen. And when we have cerebrovascular disease, that 
plays havoc in terms of brain function because what happens is you end up with tiny little strokes that over time, it would be like as if you just snipped wires all through the brain so that areas can't talk to each other anymore. And that white matter damage can really accumulate over time. And even, you know, in my grandfather's case, tragically, it caused dementia. So that's right there. Cerebrovascular health, super important. So another one, blood sugar. So we know diabetes is basically a death sentence in general, but especially for the brain. Again, very treatable, controllable, preventable. Diabetes increases your risk for Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. So again, another factor. We're seeing now with like long COVID, for instance, cognitive symptoms and cognitive effects, and that certainly affects memory. And it's probably the case for a lot of other infectious diseases, too, because of the inflammatory component. And we now know that the immune system acts in the brain, too. And as a result, when you have immune challenges, it can affect brain function. So for anybody who's not vaccinated out there, even if you find like COVID, you can, you know, get over past the worst symptoms. Long COVID is no joke. It's really important to protect yourself. There are so many other factors in addition, though, that can really help you maintain, you know, the positive factors would be the Mediterranean diet or similar diets have been shown to play a really good role in preserving brain function. Things that you would not even think of that we're still trying to understand, like Gum disease can increase your risk for cognitive deficits. And so having dental health can be very good for preserving cognition. There's things like wearing a hearing aid has been shown to help for people who have hearing deficits. We don't know why for a lot of these things, but I think there's a lot that people can do just as you, like you were saying, for car maintenance, you know, you want to make sure that your car doesn't have a lot of guck in it. You want to keep your tires nice because essentially everything's connected, right? And I think in the brain, that's absolutely true, too. I mean, we're even still trying to figure out things like the gut microbiome. Actually, can I tell you one of my favorite studies that I haven't actually done about this? It's pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, it's scary, but it's fun, too. So I met a researcher who was at USC, and so he was telling me about a study that they did where basically what they did was they were doing studies on uh, the relationship between diet and memory functioning. And so what happened was they would give like a rat the equivalent of like, you know, a sugary liquid, kind of like the equivalent of a human having a can of soda a day. And so they did this, raised the, you know, the rat grows up on, you know, drinking all these sodas. And what they found was by adulthood, the rat had cognitive deficits and atrophy to certain parts of his brain, including the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain that's super important for memory, right? Relative to a healthy rat who's just red fed rat chow. So then what they did was they basically raised other rats who didn't get soda, but they put the gut microbacteria, the gut microbiome, they took some goo, presumably from the rat stomach or whatever, put it into the healthier rat, and they ended up showing cognitive deficits too. So there's all these interactions between the gut microbiome and mental function that we're still trying to figure out. But That's another layer to it. Fortunately, everything's connected. Like I said, sleep and exercise are obvious low-hanging fruits and reducing the effects of chronic stress. And again, you know, you exercise, you're going to be less stressed. You're going to sleep better. 
you sleep better, you'll be more likely to be able to manage your stress. <laughs> you'll be less stressed out. You're less likely to have cerebrovascular disease. I mean, all of these things, eat healthier, you're going to think more effectively, which will make it easier to do all these other lifestyle habits. And cumulatively speaking, there's a great study that was done of like over 30,000 people in China, and they just looked at all these different healthy lifestyle habits and found just a pretty significant effect where the more of these habits people had, the better they preserve their memory going into old age. Now, obviously, being a productivity show here, focus and energy are topics we've talked about a lot, and that's where exercise and diet and sleep play into. And those seem very obvious. Like it seems, oh, well, if, I, if I've if i got too much caffeine, I'm jittery and I can't recall things as quickly or I can't process things correctly, I'm almost getting ahead of myself. Vice versa, you eat that large, let's say, because we're recording this on National Pizza Day, you had a really large carb-centric lunch, and then you've got that afternoon slump. That's more a physiological thing, but it's it's something that we can grab onto and hold and say, oh yeah, I can kind of see the connection. It's obviously way more complicated, and yet in some ways way more simple. But I want to latch on to sleep, because I think that's one of the ones where we've all heard kind of the, well, if you're operating on less sleep, it's almost as if you're drunk, you know, physiologically. I think one of the other things, though, and speak to this a little bit, is lack of sleep and lack of time actually sleeping tends to then make it so that you aren't even processing or capturing for long-term the memories that you have had. Like, for example, in college, I notoriously, at least to myself, in my first semester was getting way less sleep and then suddenly couldn't remember my own girlfriend's name as I was trying to say it. And that was really bad. It came off really bad. So speak to that. Sleep specifically, and we won't go into like how to get better sleep. We've got episodes on that we can direct people to. But speak to the necessity of sleep when it comes to memory. Sleep plays a bunch of important roles. So one of the misconceptions about sleep is sleep is like basically wasted time, like you're not doing anything. And it's like consciously you're not doing anything, but your brain is doing a lot of important work. So we're still figuring out just the many functions of sleep. Matt Walker, my friend at UC Berkeley, has done a lot of work on this and loves to talk about it. But one of the things that we know we've learned really recently is that the brain flushes out a lot of toxins during sleep. And so really the brain's structure changes during sleep. So for instance, one of the toxins that builds up is a protein called beta amyloid, which as many of your listeners might know, is a protein that's implicated in Alzheimer's disease. And so the brain is literally taking out the garbage, you know, and flushing these, this stuff out over the course of the night. And as a result, you can actually, people have actually imaged structural changes in the brain that happen after a night of sleep, which is just blows my mind still, right? So that, that's just one thing. But then on top of it, you can record from the brain, which you'll see is that there's all these waves that happen during different stages of sleep. And what appears to be the case is, that some of the electrical activity that you measure is related to the activation of memories that happen during the preceding day or even before that, right? So we have these memories that are being reactivated during sleep. What's that role? The simplest theory that people have is that reactivating is like kind of hammering home this memory so that it sticks around. I think, though, it's more complicated than that. And there's data to support this idea that it's like basically memories are embedded in this whole ecosystem of other memories, right? So if you activate one memory, it's going to have an impact on all these others. 
And so we've done some computer models of this and other people have. And one of the things that we think is going on is sleep is really playing this role and not only stabilizing memories so that you can hold on to them, but really being able to play around with putting together different kinds of memories from different experiences to see, is there a common thread? Is there some kind of knowledge that I can take away from all of these different things that have popped up, right? So in other words, if I you know, see you a couple of times over the course of the next year or something like that, maybe during sleep, I might replay some of those memories and be able to get a better sense of a better internal model of who I think you are based on all these interactions. They're not tied to one particular experience, but really giving me the big picture. And so that's why Matt loves to say that, you know, sleep turns memory into wisdom, basically. And I love that quote. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X dot com to learn more. You know, obviously, these are all things that we're touching on here that tend to go towards the maintenance approach. Again, to use that car metaphor, it's keeping your oil changed. It's rotating the tires. It's keeping the, the air in the tires inflated. It's all those kinds of things that contribute to the car functioning in a streamlined way. Say we're doing all those maintenance things on a regular basis. There's still more that we can be doing. There's also a different perspective or a different approach, I would say. Going back to your approach of not trying to remember everything, but remembering the right things, or better yet, remembering things better, and how there are practical strategies that we can use to do that. What's the starting point? Somebody who hasn't actually thought, oh, you know what? I do think I could do better with this. What do you first say to some of those people as you can give them some of that? Again, let's turn to the low-hanging fruit on that side of things. Mm -hmm. 
there's many different strategies that you can use for memorizing, but I think uh, it depends on what you're trying to memorize. So the strategy for being able to memorize names, for instance, isn't necessarily the strategy that you'd want to use for remembering how to get to like uh, from your hotel to like the nearest cafe or something. Right. So that said, step number one, first of all, is to acknowledge that you will forget. Right. So one of the weird paradoxes of, of human thinking is the way we think about memory, because everybody I know, well, almost everybody complains about their memory. And yet in the moment, people will have this illusion that they will remember everything. Right. So right off the bat, people are coming in thinking they'll remember everything and then being like, oh, later on, wait, why can't I remember that? I was supposed to remember that. So. The first step is if you know you're not going to be able to remember something, well, now you can start to do something proactively to say, well, what's the important thing here? And that's what I would prioritize is what's your problem? Is your problem, do you need to memorize names? Well, then what are you going to do about that? One of the principles that I talk about in my book that I'm very passionate about, I guess, is what's called error-driven learning. And what that refers to is this idea that Basically, I think we would want to believe in this, you know, imaginary world that you take NCT or whatever and you just effortlessly form memories. But in fact, that effort is what you need to really form lasting memories, that struggle, so to speak. And we've simulated this through network models of the brain and other people have that effectively when you struggle to recall a memory, for instance, it exposes the weaknesses in the brain's storage of that memory. And then those weaknesses can be fixed and tweaked around. And so we think that's a big part that explains a lot. So for instance, if you just try to memorize somebody's name by just repeating it over and over, that's not going to be very effective. But if you kind of test yourself, like, you know, close your eyes, turn around, you know, leave the conversation for a moment and then try to pull it up on your own, then you finally pull it up. That's going to result in a much stronger retention of that information later on. Likewise, you're trying to learn a new language. Testing yourself is much better than reading these words over and over again. And what's funny is, is that people don't, if you ask people, they'll often feel like, well, if I see the right answer, I'm going to get the right information and shove it into my brain. What's the advantage of getting it wrong and feeling like, you know, an ass? But it exposes those weaknesses both in terms of kind of it makes you realize, yes, I do forget, but it also allows your brain the chance to start to put together the information in a new way. One of the things we found, which is just fascinating to me, is even if you test yourself before you actually get the answer, that in and of itself can help you remember, right? So if you just take a mental guess of somebody's name before they actually give it to you, What's kind of interesting is, is then you can grab the new information and it essentially rubs out the wrong guess that you would have made. So, I mean, this is like still work in progress, I think, in this field. But I think it speaks to this larger issue of if you feel like you're struggling, that's a good thing. That's a sign of learning. That's so interesting. There's definitely an emotional component to memory for sure that colors it and changes it, et cetera. It's not just a factual account of things that then is locked away. Your emotions and your, your physical sense also ties into it. But acknowledging that downside or perceived downside, maybe actually shifting the perspective. In other words, not beating ourselves up about not remembering something because that's what 
is natural. That is what is going to happen. And I love that you're saying take that struggle as a sign of progress. That's very helpful. I think a lot of people need to hear that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's really a learning opportunity every time that you're struggling. So you can go even farther with that. And as much as it might seem counterintuitive, try to ask any actor to prepare for a play by just literally reading the script over and over again without trying to act it out from memory. They're going to be terrible. Or try to ask like somebody who's like a basketball player to just, well, imagine throwing baskets. I mean, yes, you'll get some effect, but not nearly as much as if you actually do it, right? And when you do that, you're going to expose yourself. You're going to expose your weaknesses as frustrating. But that error is actually how people learn the most and how memories get retained the best. So that's one of the key principles. There's others I can get into if, if you like. Well, one of them that I want to kind of back up a second and say, we talked about all those proactive things. There's also some things that we're doing that are deterring our memory. I'm thinking specifically of overstimulation and multitasking and constant, you know, stimulation through obviously and mostly for most of us digital means. How does that play into it when we're constantly engaged? So this is a question that I get a lot. Is technology making me dumber? Right. And it's, I think it speaks to your question about being constantly engaged and overstimulated and overwhelmed. Right. And it's such a fascinating topic because the issue is not the technology itself, but how we use it. And that's where this overstimulation part comes in. So for instance, right when I was talking to you, I got some beep on my computer and I realized, oh no, I better put this into focus mode. That's just an example of how we surround ourselves with all these potential distractions, right? Let's imagine that you have distractions that you don't care about, that you're just totally irrelevant. Well, every time I get distracted, like by that beep, my mind shifts over from talking to you to figuring out what that annoying beep was about. So that switch from those two mindsets is going to come with a cost. And so it's going to take me a little moment, take my prefrontal cortex, which is this area that's very important for being able to control memory and use it effectively. Those resources will be taken up with finding the source of that beep. Now, once I come back, what's happened is my working memory, so to speak, has flushed out the whole stuff that we were talking about. So now I have to take a moment to go back and recall where did we leave off again, right? And all of this means is that as soon as I've had that tiny distraction, now I'm two steps behind and I've used up all this extra mental energy just from that little distraction. And so now you add up many of these distractions that we have around us, things that grab our attention and keep us away from what we intend to focus on. And what it does is it just keeps us from remembering what happened because we weren't really there in the first place. We were several steps behind, right? And so that's problem number one. Problem number two is we intentionally do it to ourselves. So I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I've sat in conferences and I'm stressed out and I'm just like, okay, I got to take care of this stuff by this deadline. So what do we do? I check email during someone's talk. It's gone from being like a thing that people were ashamed of to now scientists just do this at conferences because they'll have their computer open and you'll think they're taking notes when instead they're just like checking emails and stuff like that. And what happens is you're doing a crappy job with emails and you're doing a crappy job listening to the talk. And what happens is you leave this conference that you've 
worked so hard for and you don't remember anything that happened, right? So I think there's this kind of tech bro myth that there's this something great about being able to do two or three things at once. And one of my friends who studies the prefrontal cortex likes to say, there's no such thing as multitasking. There's just doing a bunch of things badly at the same time. I have to wholeheartedly agree. We have talked about the dangers of this many times on this show. So I'm, I am right there with them. One of the things that you talk about in the book is this idea of curiosity, how that can be a component of all of this. I mean, I think we're all naturally curious. Otherwise, well, maybe we're not. I think maybe, you know, passively, if we go back to the multitasking thing for just a second, like we were there, multitasking is depending upon the amount of bells and whistles and notifications you've got turned on, distractions can be a very passive thing that pull us like magnets towards them. Curiosity is almost a a scavenging, a seeking, a proactive versus a passive approach. Does that ring true for you? Yes. Yeah. So I kind of accidentally got into the world of curiosity research because I had this brilliant postdoc in my lab named Matthias Gruber, and he was just curious about this topic. And I said, what's interesting about this? But then it turned out it's actually a very fascinating area of research because there's a basic problem. Again, if you think about why memory evolved, well, it's evolved to help us in the present and the future, but we don't want to carry everything from our past, right? It's like you have a temporary password you know, from five years ago. You don't want to remember that. You want to remember the things that are going to be useful. So the things that are useful tend to be things that are, you know, emotionally significant or things that are, you know, obviously about like just the basics, food, water, et cetera, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Uh, but then there's also things that are new and surprising. Those events carry a lot of information in them, right? But they also motivate us to seek information. So one of the things that you know, we were following up on some work that was done by a group at Caltech, but we really went after this, was this idea that we know that there are areas of the brain that process this neurotransmitter dopamine. Again, people think of dopamine as this pleasure chemical, but it's not really about pleasure. And in fact, if you look at animals and you do manipulations of dopamine, it's not that they don't enjoy rewards, let's say, if you, you remove dopamine, it's that they don't seek them out. They just sit around like blobs, you know, but if you give them rewards, they'll take them, right? So it's about energizing us to get rewards. And it's about that kind of uncomfortable feeling that you have when you want to grab something. Or sometimes it's a rush because you're excited about it, but it's not happiness, right? And so curiosity is a lot like that. It's not necessarily a happy state, but it's a motivator to get more information. And if you want to find what's important, you need to have a little bit of curiosity sometimes, right? So in other words, it's like you're a cave person. You always go to the same place for food. Well, probably lots of people are going to the same place for food. So maybe you want to explore a little bit and look for new areas where there's food, right? Or let's say something happens where it's like, you know, you get surprised about something. You thought you knew someone and then they told you something that kind of violated your understanding of them. Well, you can find out more and learn more about them and that helps you work with them better in the future, right? So we actually found that when people are in a state of curiosity, that is, we would ask them a trivia question and they're really wanting to know the answer we saw this increase in activity in areas of the brain that process rewards as if basically people were getting this motivation 
to chase information as its own reward. And when this happened, we could actually see that the brain was in a better state for learning and people were better on average at memorizing things that they weren't even curious about. So I'm a big fan of questions as opposed to answers. And I mean, of course, I'm a scientist and I'm motivated by questions. So I'm definitely dedicating my life to following curiosity. But another interesting thing about curiosity is, is it's often supplanted by external rewards. So they've even done studies in monkeys where if you give an external reward, their curiosity goes down. And so curiosity is kind of at its best when you just give people this gap in their knowledge and you encourage them to follow that curiosity as opposed to saying, here, you're going to get this good grade if you do this. That actually is a curiosity killer. Very interesting. In closing, I'd love to also talk about the ability for memory to do healing. Explain that a little bit. Like some people are thinking, well, what do you mean? Do I just like go through and like think happy memories and go to my happy place that I experienced once and or use my imagination to kind of change things? It's way different from that. Well, yeah, but let's go with the happy place for a moment because that is an interesting thing. So we'll come back to the, you know, the more deeper healing part. I actually, you know, after writing the book, I started to go through all my own life dysfunction and say, what can I actually learn from my own book? <laughs> and so one of the things is, that, um, you know, I talked about this in the introduction to my book, is one of the first things that struck me about memory is what a powerful tool it is for shaping your emotions in the present. And people recall positive things from their life, they will feel better. If they recall negative things from their life, they'll feel worse, right? So I started, and I haven't had much time, so I'm not very good at it, but I started a gratitude practice at the end of the day. And this gratitude practice, which I struggled with in the past because I would be thinking, yes, there's so many good things that are happening to me, but it's just, you know, there are things which like, you know, I take for granted, like my health and so forth, but I just couldn't get into the, that was giving me a happy moment to think I'm healthy, right? But what I started to do is I said, just let me think of dumb minor things that happened in the past 24 hours. It could be anything that I'm thankful for. Oh, well, somebody sent me an email and they just said hi out of the blue and it was a friend I hadn't heard from for a while. That's great, you know, or just little things like that. Like, you know, a student in my lab brought me a cupcake or something when they went to Starbucks. Great, you know, whatever it is, those little things. And I found I just recalled two or three of those little things and I would feel better. It was just like clockwork, you know? So I do think going to your happy place isn't literally a happy place, but it's things in the here and now or very recent experiences, I would say, that you want to pull up that, you know, we're happy. And I think that can make you appreciate life in a different way. But getting back to this topic of healing, obviously it's a deeper issue, right? So many people have experiences from their past and one of the things I think is, is that people can be very deterministic when they think about the past. Like the past can only be viewed from one way. And I think memory serves us best when it's giving us options as opposed to reducing them. So if you've had some, you know, terrible memory from something as a, uh, you know, as a child or something like that. And now because of that, you believe you're incompetent. Well, that's reducing your options. But one of the cool things about memory is, is that we get data from memory, which would be like these little bits and details that take us back to a place and time. But then we have our interpretations. And those interpretations basically determine the narrative that we put together. Because really, we don't replay the past. Again, the brain's super economical. 
We just get bits and pieces, and then we imagine how the past could have been from those memories. And then that also, the same mechanisms are what we could use more or less to imagine how the future could unfold, right? But the beautiful thing about that is just as you can anticipate, you can imagine the future from a different perspective based on different assumptions, you can reimagine the past by taking different framings and different assumptions. And so the big thing that I would do in cognitive therapy was not to tell people, dig up some emotional memory and it'll come up and you'll just feel better. That does not work on its own. It can make people feel worse, in fact. And I also wasn't just digging around for trauma or whatever. But what we do is when people had things that bothered them, one of the fascinating things I found was the act of sharing something that people felt ashamed about in and of itself was very important because they were doing it with somebody that they trusted. And so right there, that act of recalling this thing that you've never told anyone about and sharing with somebody in the context of trying to work through it, in and of itself, I'm already transforming that narrative just a tiny bit. But then my job was to basically reframe and say, well, I'm not you, so I have the freedom to look at the same memory from a different perspective. And I don't have to impose my perspective on this person, but I'm just giving them other options, other ways of thinking about it. And once you start seeing those same experiences from a different perspective, you can actually pull up new information that you hadn't before. Because one of the things about the past is our goals and our assumptions and beliefs shape what we pull out and you know what we ignore. And so if you can change that framing, you can actually pull out stuff that you had just totally forgotten about. And that, I think, is a powerful tool for healing because often we see things and we just feel like this is how it happened. But those stories are just stories. And there's many different ways of looking at the same thing, right? So I think uh, I love Ben Kenobi's quote in Star Wars, where he says, many of the truths that we cling to depend on our own perspective. And with memory, that's absolutely true. That's totally right. Well, it has been great talking with you. I know there's so much more to go into from the book, but what's great is the book is out, (laughs) or at least as people are downloading this episode and listening to it, you can pre-order it slash it's out. So I'd love for people to find out more about you. Where can people go get more information about the book? Well, if you want information about the book or about memory in general, one thing people can do is they can follow my Instagram. It's called The Memory Doc, so you don't have to worry about my name there. You can also go on my website, charanranganath.com, where you can sign up for the mailing list, and hopefully I'll start to get some content out there soon. And yes, of course, reading the book. Perfect. I will link up to all those things in the show notes. Charan, it's been great talking with you again. We could do another whole episode of what we didn't cover, but that's why it's great to go grab the book. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Char and Ranganath. I found this book fascinating, and I really think that it's worth your while. I've put the link in the show notes for you at beyondthetodolist.com. That way you can grab it fairly easily. If, while you were listening to this, you remembered, see what I did there, something from this conversation you thought somebody else would find either fascinating or helpful, would you do me the favor of sharing this episode with them? Again, you can go to those show notes I just mentioned at beyondthetodolist.com or hit that share button wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you 
again for sharing. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next episode.